Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, for your delectation and delight, I have Chris Murray, author of the extremely successful Salesman's Club and Selling With Ease as my guest. Chris, would you mind doing a quick two-minute intro into who you are and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Well, I am um, like a great number of salespeople that I come across on a day-to-day basis, went into sales because A, it was to get going was the ability to drive and speak. And also everybody at school told me I wouldn't make a living from speaking and I thought I'd prove them wrong. And I went and got a job in the drinks industry. It was like being James Bond at 22. It was champagne and it was evenings out. And it was an incredible grounding for what what later became a wonderful sales career and, and, and certainly around the world. I couldn't quite get the job on the road that I was desperate to get hold of. So I, I left the drinks industry and I thought I'd go for something really hard hitting and someone who would take me seriously. And I went and sold Minolta photocopiers in the early 90s. Which it was the days of knocking on 50 doors and picking up 50 compliment slips and getting back to the big computer with the white writing and pulling off the green perforated printout. <laughs> long gone I had a boss who used to do that for Xerox years ago and he had one road in Manchester but only the right hand side <laughs> yeah I mean, it was Xerox that trained us and um, and I was on the course with the guys who had the left and right hand side of Regent Street which <laughs> 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 was brilliant and because of that when I rejoined the drinks industry it was pretty much the uh, the one eyed man is king in the land of the blind nobody well, nobody was getting any really good sales training in most industries. As we went towards the mid to the late 90s, the birth of the internet came in in the 1999-2000 turn proper, and everybody's turned to emails and websites. While I had that great background, I, I'm fairly positive that we're now on about the third generation of sales manager who didn't have a boss who knew how to prospect and sell properly and has forgotten the foundations and the genuine sort of like concrete blocks at the bottom of selling rather than the, the the quick fixes that everybody's desperate to sort of like employ at the moment and you know, I, I'm, 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 feathers just in case you missed it <laughs> right, really. but I, I just you know i've got this thing where don't send out a thousand emails because you can send out one good one because it's worth it you know you've hit the nail right on the head there i mean you see a lot of and paul lloyd and i often have a little bit of banter about this because he feels sorry for the sales managers. I have a view that your five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. I mean, the case of most sales managers, their biggest obstacle is ignorance, which then fuels denial and ego. Now, they don't know any better, because Jonathan Farrington said something in July, which really sparked my curiosity, that only 6% of sales managers worldwide are qualified for the job. Because what happens is this, the idiot sales manager who wasn't trained and happened to flounder their way into a sales management position, because possibly they were the best salesperson of the group, gets promoted. And their induction process goes something like this. Chris, congratulations, you are one. And suddenly they have the title of manager. They're managing the people who were their peers a minute ago. Then they do what was done to them. And in this day and age, there has been so much piffle talked about how 
sales has changed so much that you don't need to prospect and blah, 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 blah. Prospecting is the lifeblood of every sales organization. The fact that the telephone is uncomfortable and difficult doesn't diminish the fact that it can be highly effective if you know how to do it. So what's going on? Why is it that there are so few managers who actually spend their time recruiting, onboarding, training, and developing and coaching their people to prospect as a matter of habit? Apart from anything, it's two different skill sets that have been merged into one because of the internet and email sort of enabled it to do so. But prospecting isn't account management, it isn't selling, it isn't negotiating. If you're prospecting for gold, you are sifting through shit and crap in the river and you are desperately trying to find the right place and the right content in the right water so that you can find those nuggets of gold. And when you get into town, that's when you start selling, you sell the gold. But prospecting is all about preparation and searching and grafting and sweating. It's the legs of the swan underneath the water that you don't see. And because of that, it's not very sexy. But you can be set loose on Regent Street or anywhere else in the country. And if you don't know where you're pointing yourself or haven't discovered a way of attracting customers so they want to talk to you in the first place, then every sales technique that you employ in the meeting won't work because if they don't trust you at the beginning, they're not going to trust you at the end. When everybody said that that old phrase of, of cold calling's dead, and I'm not sure how ever alive it was, right? But again, but cold calling's dead is everybody went and drank that pink Kool-Aid, follow this line because you don't have to prospect like your granddad did anymore. And so that sales manager, that salesperson became a sales manager and never got trained on how to do it. Then their salespeople became sales managers. And now we're sitting at people who are just staring at a map of the universe thinking, shit, where do I start? I mean, this is really interesting. The fact that you don't have to write down the numbers by hand in the library is <laughs> in my Now you have access to massive resources. You can buy in lists and all this kind of stuff. But speaking to Mario Martinez from Vengresso a couple of weeks ago, it's really interesting that just one or two channels to get through to a prospect will typically yield a roughly 10% uh, engagement rate. But a third channel will up that to 40%. And again, I think there's so much drivel talked about social versus cold calling and versus email and all that kind of stuff. I think they all have their place. What we need to understand is that when we're prospecting, uh, what we need to be able to do is market one-to-one. We need to be able to enter into the conversation our prospect is already having. We have to enter into their world. And then it's a bit like that scene in Finding Nemo, where they're swimming along, they suddenly hit the Gulf Stream, and then whoosh, off they go. And it's our job as sellers to identify people who have problems that we can fix and then find a way to cut through the clutter and the noise and the distraction. Because by the time we eventually get to communicate with them and they pay attention to our messaging, they've probably already made 143 decisions that morning. And they've been interrupted constantly. So we have to really tailor our messaging so that it's interesting, it's meaningful, it's relevant, it's timely. It comes from caring, Marcus. That's the trouble that I like to replace selling with helping, right? If you change the word selling for helping, if you go out to help people. The biggest lesson I learned in my 30s, and probably late 30s actually, it was far too late in my life. 
I always thought I was trying to help him. I cared about who I was selling to, but I was a bit thrusty in my 20s and I maybe, maybe didn't care enough. When you realise that actually people want to speak to people who can help them and people who genuinely care and people who have taken the time to step back and go, I understand your need. I know why you swap money for this. I know how I can help. And I really want to help you. Once people start thinking like that, nobody gives salespeople enough time to sit, sit back and say, how do you help? I mentioned previously, just before we came on air, that I was, I was in the drinks industry. Talk to people in the drinks industry about their brands. And they say, how does this help people? You know, How does this help somebody in that pub? And they say, well, they can sell it and make money. It's not like they've got no beer or no wine or no spirits at the moment. Why should I swap? Why should I change? How is this going to help? Nobody, and nobody has those conversations. They just walk out with marketing-created presentation decks and tell everybody how many bottles there are in a case. You know, it just winds me up incredibly that nobody is sharing such simple... Nobody takes a shortcut until they're shown the shortcut, but it, it really is, if you think about it, let's start caring about people enough to know how we're helping so that when we craft our message, they're really interested in it. I've spent a lot of time working with people who sell to the C-suite. I sell to the C-suite. And what I've recognized is they are people who have problems. And they hate it when their time is being wasted, but they love it when you take them something that they don't know, where you ask them questions that deliver insight and rip the scales from their eyes and challenge their thinking so that they can stay ahead of the problem. And what they don't want is for you to turn up and pitch. They (laughs) don't want you to try and talk about your company, your product, your services. I always joke about this, but I'm serious about it. It's like Mm -hmm. taking photos of your ugly children and showing them to strangers. (laughs) Because, frankly, they'll watch one or two, and then they'll think, is there a way to push this oaf out the window, get rid of him? Because what they want is to solve their problems. And they're carrying big responsibilities. And we have a responsibility. The first thing we need to establish is, can we help? And if we can, are we the best person to help them? And this, again, I think is something that's deeply missing. You hear about this, what's his name? The Wilf of Wall Street. Belfort. Belfort. And so that boiler room type of approach. I mean, yeah, it sells because it's attractive to people who are very gung-ho. But long term, I'm not sure that you can get through a career in sales without working exceptionally hard by burning through relationships and causing distrust for the entire profession. I bet you he's not alone, is he? I mean, it's, um, there are far too many of them. I come back to your people in the C-suite with the problems. Everybody with important decisions to make at one time or another, wakes up at three o'clock in the morning sweating about something. As a business owner, there have been times when I have woken up at three o'clock in the morning sweating about something. And for someone just to walk in and say, I've been told to come in here to show you this box because I've got to hit target and I really couldn't care enough about whether it would help or not to get ready for it. As a business owner, I see salespeople myself. They come in, and, and I've had a couple of phone calls this morning. You've got to wonder what they were hoping to achieve when they just start off trying to hit target rather than trying to help. You know, you're talking about the, the, the guys want to know something that they don't already know. There's a Portuguese word called sordade, and sordade, there's no, there's no translation in English. 
It's the feeling that you have of something that's missing that you wish existed, but it doesn't, so you never go looking for it. And I think as a sales as salespeople, our job is to go and solve customers' sordades, to go and show them the thing they didn't even know they needed and help them solve the problem they, they thought was unsolvable. How do you spell sordade? S-A-U-D-A-D-E. Very nice. I should be stealing that. Thank you. <laughs> I was wondering whether to share it, but it's all over my video, so hell. <laughs> We're in public domain, so you can't have any credit then. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty much owned by the Portuguese. It's really not mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's fabulous. Okay. Again, this then comes back to this question. You know, can we help? Are we the right people to help? And I think it's justifiable that as a profession, sales has got a bit of a murky name. But I was talking to Jack Meisel a couple of years ago, and we were talking about this concept of sales as a force for good. And I absolutely fundamentally believe that it is, if it's done well with the right intent. And what I'm curious about is, what are you teaching your clients about the ethics of selling? Changing helping for selling is how I start almost every keynote and workshop. Because it's did I say, did I get that all the wrong way around? Yeah, that, was a, that was a Freudian slurp, if ever. Yeah. It works either way. If you, if you, if you, <laughs> you want to change the word sales for help. You want to change the word selling for helping. Because your posture changes, the way you talk to people changes, the way you get out of bed and go to work and try and find people changes. If you tell salespeople to go and sell to people and sell at people, then they drag their sorry asses out of their chairs and they go to their meetings and they go, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to charge you too much for something I don't believe in. If you actually work out how you're helping, then you know it's like having a cure for horrible disease. You don't lie in, you go and find them. And if, somebody, if there's two people and, and one person wants you to save their life because it's so important to them, their family in the future, and one person doesn't want to take your call, you administer the medicine to the people that will help. You can't help all your friends. So you can't help all your customers. I've got friends who won't take my advice. So I'm not surprised there aren't customers who won't. But at the same time, time, going out and helping people and letting it shine through your eyes and through your heart that you are there to help. And if they want, somebody used to say to me that nobody ever kicked a dog wagging its tail. After doing some work with the NHS with customer service, it turns out that one in 10 people have, <laughs> have psychopathic tendencies. So, so, so one in 10 people would kick a dog wagging its tail. So, you know, but, but helping 90% of the population can't be a bad thing. <laughs> Back to the ethics piece. What should we be teaching young, up-and-coming, ambitious salespeople right at the start of their career? Can I give an example of the opposite so that I can come back? the right thing to do because I think I think the stark reality of what's going on out there at the moment and when you mention it it's it's almost hard to believe that it's happening but then again there'll be people in this audience that will listen to this in the next two minutes and go what's wrong with that those people tend not to be my customers but I wrote a piece yesterday that some people think of sales as a bit of a blood sport that customers should be hunted and defeated and then the kill should be celebrated and rewarded and after I'd written it, just by chance, I, I went to the newspaper article for a company who were getting their telesales to sell funeral plans to the retired and the aged, the customers as gazelles and the salespeople to lions. Wow. So that's an example, I think, of everything I hate about and why we get such a bad rep. They might all beat the chest and make Tarzan noises in the morning. They might even go and drink Dom Perignon until three o'clock in the morning 
at a, a string fellows. I don't know. And good luck to them. But you've got to grow up one day and see that your soul can't stay dirty for too long. You've got to recognise. Somebody put on the post yesterday that when it comes to a straight shootout, Chris, you've got to get commercial. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be commercial, although I didn't appreciate the phrase shootout. We help people for money so we can afford to do it again. We're not charitable, although to be fair, charities earn money to spend it on things that they have to buy. Even charities buy things. We should be there to help people, charge accordingly for it, feel proud that we are giving a great service and great product for an appropriate amount of money. And then if that makes us all wealthy and you want to make a million quid out of it, good on you, you've helped the world. I do refer to sales as a full contact blood sport, but for a different reason. That if you take the rejection person, then you're going to survive for a very short time and it's going to take a piece out of your soul. If you're in sales to go out and try and make friends with the prospect, that's not your job. Your job is to establish, can I help? If I can, am I the right person? And if I'm the right person, I have an obligation to sell to you. I have an obligation to go to the bank because it's my job to keep the business afloat. It's to bring home customers who can pay, who are in our sweet spot, who we can serve. And I refer back to something Stephen Covey said to me once at an event. I asked a very average question. He came back with what was a a watershed moment uh, response for me, which is the greatest among us serve the most. And I firmly believe that people have forgotten what service means. It's like in our political system. The minute you start getting career politicians who are more interested in keeping the wick than instead of being in public service to serve the public, you taint it. And I think selling is about finding people who you can serve. And there is honor in that. And there's an immense level of satisfaction. I've sold some stuff that I wasn't wild about. And I quickly learned that I should move on. The work that I do now, I feel genuinely, is important and meaningful work. It transforms lives. And it has a positive impact on them, their family, the people around them, their companies. And I can hold my head up. I can look in the mirror and like the person who's looking back at me because I haven't had to sell my soul to make a fast buck. Now, I recognize not everyone is in that fortunate position, but whatever you're selling, I think it's incumbent on you to be absolutely authentic and to behave with integrity. But that seems to have gone out the window to a large extent. And that that worries me. There's a couple of industries that we don't work to as a train work with as a trading company one of them being tobacco companies i've got nothing against cigarettes i've got nothing against the tobacco industry it's just that when my little girl who's not so little now she's 15 when she was born that was the last cigarette i had i tried to give up for years previously but i haven't had a cigarette since that day and i have no intention of smoking ever again and it's not that i've got anything against it i've just got nothing nice to say about it I can't help people in a room sell cigarettes because I don't like them very much. Not the people, the cigarettes. It would just be disingenuous of me. And there's plenty of other people that take that dollar. It's just, it's just that those people, unfortunately, I don't feel I can help, so I don't. Fair point. People who enjoy working with and people who don't enjoy working with me, are, like I said, there's a couple of industries, people whose favourite film is The Wolf of Wall Street. We've already mentioned they don't like me. Boiler room. 
Wolf of Wall Street isn't a bad movie. So it's, it's, I had a very pleasant evening in a bottle of wine with my wife watching that movie. However, if you're using it as a structure and a a pedestal for perfect sales technique, I think you're wrong. So people who do that don't hire me and I don't want to work for them. You know, the third group are people who genuinely don't care, genuinely don't care about their, about their customers or their sales teams. When I sit down with those people, it becomes quite obvious that and the conversations and the answers they give me from the questions, they're not going to like the things that I will share with their team because they don't care about their team and they don't care about the customers. And I'm all about helping people. This then brings me on to something else I see an awful lot of. I think within sales, there is a culture of almost reverence for the new business hunter. And that was certainly where I was brought up in sales. You know, new business, new business, new business. The research on this, the latest research on this is suggesting that it costs 12 to 25 times more to sell to a new customer than to an existing customer. And when you then remember that what you keep matters much more than what you make, then if you're consistently and only focused on new business, and that then drives your ethics so that you'll sell anything to anyone, whether it's right for them or not, then that leaves you forced into a position where you have to start your business afresh every month. And one of the things I love about our business model is that basically it's a subscription. And I don't need to go out and find 400 clients in a year. 20 is more than enough because they come back month after month after month and I charge premium. And because I charge premium, it means that I can love them to death and I can give them as much attention as they require And I can also have a balanced lifestyle. Now, if your pursuit is just for money, then yes, you can make a very, very good living in sales. But again, one of the things that I see time and again is the salespeople who come to interviews where they say that their primary motivation is money generally aren't the ones who are really successful, which is slightly ironic, isn't it? No, I agree with that. I was just thinking while you were talking then that if you want to make a lot of money out of selling, go and sell luxury yachts and take the commission off the sale of a luxury yacht. The problem that you get there is that the person in the grey shiny suit who thinks that he's the Wolf of Wall Street, but is actually on a a telesales desk somewhere in Stockton Heath, no offence to anybody in Stockton Heath, if they went for the interview at the luxury yacht provider, they would say, I'm sorry, you're not our kind of person. Because if you want to sell to the super rich and make the commission that the super rich are willing to share, then you have to be able to be top of the game because they know what shit is. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you're just there to take the money, they know that. And apart from anything, they've spent a lifetime trying to keep away from people who steal their money because that's not how you get rich. You get rich by keeping it. (laughs) You get rich by keeping it. I always say that about people who give, um, who are desperate to give discount. You know, I, I can't actually maintain the value and, and, and proper pricing of the product. I've worked with two billionaires and three millionaires in my time, as, as, and I've been sales director for all five of them. They didn't give a penny away. That's how they became millionaires and billionaires. Truly rich people are the people that, when they take the team out to Pizza Express, ask what discount they're going to have for cash at Pizza Express. And these are the people that drive in Bentleys and have helicopters. <laughs> they are so used to being, or people trying to hoodwink them, hoodwink them that they're just they're so savvy to it. And 
you've got to recognise that if you want to be that top table and earning a million pound commission from something, then you've got to look and act like a million pounds. Let's take this a little bit further then. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to look after your accounts, your customers, and recognise that a customer, you turn them into a client. The way I define a customer is somebody who's bought from you a few times. A client, on the other hand, sees you as somebody they trust. You're the first person they call when they need help. They pay you premium and they bring you their wealthy friends as additional customers. And you spend time with them, working with them for years and years and years. For young salespeople to develop that skill set, what is it they need to understand and what are the skills and competencies they need to develop? One of the jobs I had in my late 20s was with an international spirits manufacturer and um, truly one of my favorite and best bosses who helped catapult my career, a guy called Craig. And um, Craig Campbell sat me down for my end of year review. And during that year, I had signed contracts and got new business that nobody had ever got in that business before. People had been going through the motions and telling the board why things couldn't be won. And I came up, I came out with, with um, no idea that these conversations had gone in the past and I'd been given a chance and I went out there and set the world on fire. And I was getting memos back in the day when you got a paper memo with everybody CC'd on it. You got memos from the chairman and the CEO in America and Australia and around the world and, and my boss and his boss and his boss's boss. And everyone I was getting to sit at the top table and next to the top honchos at, at, at industry dinners. And Craig Campbell sat me down for my end of year review. He asked me, so what do you think you're doing, Chris? And I gave some kind of cocky young man thrust the answer like, I don't know, what do you mean, Craig? Like winning business that nobody else has ever been able to win in this company. And he gave me a stare, which I will never forget. And when I think about it now, it chills me to my very backbone. That uh, simply said, shut up, Murray, and just take a bit of advice. (laughs) Honestly, I went very quiet and I went very pale. He said, this industry is a wonderful one and and there are lots and lots of clients but it's a circular one and you may not be able to see the end of the road at the moment. You will get to it and you'll have to start going back down it again. And you can keep winning all this business and ignoring them and going and chasing new ones because you just keep picking up a new flag and running off with it so that you get all the rewards and plaudits. But you've got to look after these guys. And it was one of the best customer service account management lessons that I ever got because as my career progressed, those people came with me. And as I moved businesses, those people were happy to see me and my teams. I really would have just been a complete sales lemming and just run right off the edge of the cliff if it hadn't been for Craig stopping me. That was good bit of advice. When did that happen? 28, when I was 28. And, uh, Very good. That was lucky uh, it happened so early. God, yeah. That's when my career really took off because I was just a lucky chancer. A kid from my background shouldn't have been working for Morrison Chandon and Don Perignon and Jim Beam and the French Ministry of Agriculture. I shouldn't have been having all those jobs. Every new job I got, I thought that was it. I was, I was lucky to be there. There was no long-term plan. It was people like Craig and, uh, and my next 
last guy called Pete Roberts. You know, I started reading and started watching and started started tapping back into the fact that best training I'd got in the, from that Xerox week, that uh, maybe it hadn't all stopped there. Maybe I wasn't the finished article. Maybe there was stuff to do. And then people started investing in me again. I mean, Jim Beam, when I worked for Jim Beam, they spent almost a month and a half of a year doing some level of training and making you better tomorrow than you were yesterday, you know? Again, that's refreshing to hear, but it is very rare. You see it in tech to some degree, but again, what passes for sales training is more often than not product training, and that's pitiful. Sales is a profession. If, If any of you are in any doubt that sales is a profession. It's the oldest profession. The other one is just a subset. Um, (laughs) Selling requires you to evolve because what worked in the 1950s, 1980s, 2000s doesn't necessarily work as well as it used to. And a lot of the stuff that is being peddled still to this day, it was out of date when Queen Victoria was a kid. The approach to selling has changed. People haven't. They need to know that you give a damn, you actually care, that your intent is pure, it's that you're there to help, you're there to serve, because what you project out gets reflected back. And if they yes. see you as being self-serving, you can fool some of them some of the time, but you've got to make sure that you are doing the right thing by your customer. And I know it's easy for us as fuddy-duddy old gray-haired men, well, you've got hair, I haven't, because we're fat, dumb, and happy. The reality is that we have to look after our customers. We have a moral obligation to do that. And the ethics of selling are really critical. It's your job to serve. It's your job to pay attention. Attention is a currency. You pay attention. And if you pay good attention, your customers will tell you how to sell to them and how to sell to them for a very, very long time. You need to not only pay attention, but you have to listen not only with the intent of learning and understanding, but to gain insight. And you have to question for insight as well. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. But to go to a point you made there, the way that the life of sales and and sales strategies have changed since Victorian times, you're quite right. There are people peddling 1975 sales training was working back then but you know as dave d says when attacked it becomes known it just stops working make sure you know the principles and the foundations of your trade and which in, in, i don't believe there's a sales industry there's lots of industries that have salespeople, and i think that once you've got your product knowledge down look at sales and look at the principles and the foundations of what will always be true and then find people who are telling the truth about sales today and then if you find that well and the water's good, keep going back to those couple of wells and stick with them. And then when it stops working, move on. The sales profession is changing and there are many salespeople who I believe their jobs are under threat. The advent of tools and technologies like Alexa and Siri mean that business-to-business buyers are behaving more and more like consumers and they can now go to the internet or they can ask their AI to go away and find information. And there's that statistic floating around the internet saying 57% of the buying decision has already been made before they invite in a salesperson. Well, that tells me that salespeople who are being invited in at that point weren't very good because they weren't doing their prospecting. And this Mm -hmm. comes back to 
one of our first points, which is that salespeople trained by their managers to prospect and make prospecting a habit, and it's a non-negotiable daily activity. The second thing it tells us is that if buyers are behaving like that, then as genuinely professional salespeople, we should be helping our customers and our prospects think ahead of the problem. We should be helping them to formulate their decision and helping them to identify where the problem really exists and what they need to do about it. So by the time they do decide if they are going to go out to market, then you've positioned yourself as the only show in town. But so few salespeople think like that. They're reactive. They're just reacting to inbound inquiries or to leads that are handed to them. And genuine salesmanship requires us to be salespeople, not to be order takers. And there are so many empty suits. You know, Larry Levine always talks about empty suits. He's absolutely right. There are a lot of empty suits that are basically just regurgitating product information. And what they're not doing is they're not diagnosing. They're not analyzing. They're not thinking ahead. They aren't strategic. They're not helping their customers get ahead of their problems. So, yeah, they're not helping themselves either, Marcus. So you think an undertaker in, in 2020 is a drop-down menu on a website. And there was a Forrester statistic that came out recently that another 20, 30% of business-to-business salespeople will be replaced. But the thing is, you can't, it's the Sordade thing. You can't search for the thing you don't know exists. The whole purpose of our jobs in the 21st century, and it always used to be really, but we've got so used to PowerPoint decks and people doing our job for us and machines doing our jobs for us, that we don't go and solve people's Sordade. This is the thing you don't even know you need help with. You can't search for this because you don't know what to ask for. That's why I brought it to your door. Yeah, the unknown unknowns. Because I'm sitting there thinking my world's perfect, thank you very much. Everything people need is just outside their comfort zone. If it wasn't, they'd go and get it. Because if you want it and it's in your comfort zone, you just reach over and get it. So everything that everybody wants or needs is just outside their comfort zone. So salespeople, if you want to improve, then you've got to go outside your comfort zone because that's where improvement is. Customers, if you, if you want the next best thing, you've got to go out of your comfort zone. But that's where salespeople come in because we don't want them to go out of the comfort zone. We're quite happy to bring that to them. Well, this is really interesting because if you think about what our job is as salespeople, I believe it's to find people who think they are well and engage them in a conversation to help them realize that maybe there's some hurt there and to diagnose, to dig deeper, to find out that they're sick. And more often than not, because they have grown so used to the discomfort or the way of doing things, that they see no reason to change. And every one of us in sales sells one thing and one thing only, which is change. It's moving from where they are to an improved future. But that change is uncomfortable. It's something that we resist by nature. It's something that we don't want to do because it's just easier, more convenient, more familiar to stick with what we've done. And great salespeople help their prospects and their customers move from that position where they are comfortable to a place where they're having to look into the ugly mirror and say, you know, there's a better way and find their motivation for making that change. 
But that's a tough call because it's it takes genuine skill. And yeah, the does, only yeah. way you're going to develop that skill is through training and developing yourself, through research, through reading, through practice, through coaching, through having great mentors. And I think a lot of people in sales mistakenly think that asking for help is somehow a personality defect. So what do we do to get past that? That's a big problem, isn't it? Because I, I feel the same way with sales managers as I do with salespeople in the fact that when I came for the interview, I told you I could do the job. So to now tell you that I could do it better if means that I was either lying or I failed. If the only transferable skill set of some salespeople is to walk, talk, and possibly have a driving license, then maybe actually putting your hand up and going, you know, when I said I could do all that, well, do you know, I don't think I'm the finished article. There are huge swathes of businesses that don't want their, to hear their sales team or their salespeople say that they are not the finished article. I thought that's what they bought in because the people who bought in the sales team and paid their wages got salespeople on board because they didn't have time or couldn't do it or both. We only hire veterans. They don't need training. <laughs> we only have someone who has retired early on your money. That's nice. so again another thing that really just yeah and they brought their order book they brought their order book with them they've got their rolodex because that's how veteran they are (laughs) (laughs) the next thing the fluffers in porn the sales enablement crew i get why sales enablement is a great idea But if you haven't got the basics right, it's basically intellectual masturbation. Um, And it's really not going to move your business forward. So, yes, these technologies are utterly brilliant. They're well thought through. They're well designed. But if you haven't got the basics right, uh, no amount of throwing good money after bad is going to make the blindest bit of difference. No, I agree with that. I've mentioned previously, I just think, think the sad thing is, again, that salespeople are, uh, and businesses are selling this to people who are really, really desperate. Some of them are, are, are on the last few dollars and they put the last few dollars into the sales enablement because the website says that once this is in, you'll know who's on your website, you'll know who you, who you need to get in touch with, it'll do all this for you and, and then it'll make you a cup of tea in the morning. And it's just, if you haven't got the principles and foundations in place, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, if you don't know why it exists and you don't know what you're aligning it with, then you might have something that's enabled, but you've got nothing to enable. (laughs) Most people don't get up in the morning as business terrorists. I don't think anybody is coming to work trying to bring companies down. I don't think anybody is coming to work to do a bad job. I think that um, on the whole, that if salespeople are given great leadership, great training, and are managed by great people, which means that the managers need training as well, there are a number of people who need to be advised to go and find another career path. But that's the same in every industry. But I genuinely think that the people who come into sales eventually realize that they really hit a lucky patch and this could be a really great career for them and they have so much opportunity And when they're given that chance and they're given the right direction and they're given the right books, the reading list I was given by one of my bosses changed my life. 
you know and just if we just point these people in the right direction then i reckon that there's so much untapped potential in the sales world it's just but i'm not trying to do you or i a disservice here but you don't have to spend a fortune on training most it helps, of, it helps but most of my idols three people i love you mentioned one of them previously stephen covey zig ziglar and jim Rohn. yeah you can find all three of those guys on youtube just put Jim Rohn, Stephen Covey, or uh, Zig Ziglar into the search and see what comes up because it's life-changing. And, and just find people who are, are freely helping and then go deeper down that rabbit hole. If you're not doing this, if you're not investing in yourself, if you're not putting in, and I kid you not, an hour a day of study, you're doing yeah. yourself Audiobooks on the go. Zig Ziglar used to call it Automobile University. And uh, I used to listen to audiobooks when they were on tape and on CD. Audible now, I think $14.99 gets you three or five books. And I've got a backlog of books I've got to listen to. I listen to them on planes. I listen to them on trains. I listen to them in the car. I listen to them when I'm in hotel rooms around the world. I genuinely, at 20, I didn't think I should have to read about work or study anymore. Uh, sorry, in my late 20s. And so audiobooks filled that gap in. When I was doing my wine diploma and studying from a master of wine, I wanted to read as many of those wine books uh, or I wanted to hear them as, as, as many as, as possible on audiobook because I was just too lazy to get into the books. But once I got a love of reading and studying and learning and stretching the mind, I'm still amazed that so many of my past colleagues who didn't stretch themselves didn't pick this up and, and didn't hear the advice because there comes a time in sales when you are the oldest, most expensive man in the room or woman, and you neither feel old nor expensive. And you've just got to keep going. You've got to get better. You know, you've got to find that next step because somebody younger can go and call on those accounts and will pick up what you've, what you're doing quite quickly, according to the company. And um, don't be the old expensive one in the room. Be the champion who everybody sees huge amounts of value in. If you capture three lessons a day and maybe you apply 10% of them, and when you come out of the meeting with a prospect or off a call, then write down three lessons and work out how I'm going to apply those lessons the next time I'm involved in a conversation with a prospect. Okay? Yeah. Now, if you do this, you will start to see yourself streak ahead of your competition because most of your competition, without putting too fine a point on it, is fat, dumb, and happy. Mm -hmm. happy just drawing their basic salary and maybe occasionally four or six months in the year getting paid a commission. If you want to be a full-time, genuine, professional salesperson, your commission be the bulk of your income. You should be confident enough to be able to walk away from the basic salary and only work for commission. My nose sounds like a heresy. I can't walk away from my salary. Well, if you are good enough and if you're investing in yourself, you would be able to. And you can write your own paycheck. You can write down, you can decide in advance how much you are going to draw from your account because you will be able to predictably earn it. And that's what can happen if you are a genuine professional salesperson. But there are these two statistics that are really interesting. The time available for selling and the time where salespeople are highly productive in any given working day. The time available for selling, on average, is between 12 and 21%, according to Dave Brock. 
Now, if you multiply that against the time where salespeople are highly productive, that means that salespeople are highly productive and available for selling between three and seven and a quarter percent of the time they are on your payroll. Now, think about that statistic. If you could get them to six or even nine percent, yeah, yeah, making a monumental impact on your business. And so this is where we need to have a bit of a beating for the leaders of businesses. If you are a leader in a business and you are not investing regularly in good training for your salespeople, it doesn't have to be me or Chris. It can be that you guys actually bring in really good externals to explain what it's really like to be a chief executive or a chief financial officer or a chief technology officer, and have those people come in and explain what they really want from salespeople. Have the sales managers trained properly, because that's where you really need to start. Training salespeople to close and make cold calls and all that stuff is fine and dandy, but most training is forgotten almost as soon as it's delivered, because it's not reinforced. And the sales manager has to be someone who is capable of transferring skill, is able to develop your people. And they are the most important people in your business. And if you're not investing in them, you are making a categorically stupid mistake. No, I couldn't agree more. And you know, to add on to that, to the beginning part of that as well, about the, um, I don't know, for the couple of thousand, 5,000 salespeople I see on a yearly basis with keynotes and training and what have you, you wouldn't give or you wouldn't employ more than about 10% of that group without a second thought. There are some people that you bump into and go, geez, I wish you were working for me. And I can understand why they won't let you go. And I can understand why you're thirsty for the next step. And those 10%, if I want to be generous, I'll go up to 20. But if I'm only, those 10% are investing in themselves and they're t- spending time on themselves. Jim Rohn, you say, you've got to work harder on yourself than you do on your job. They've seen, they aspire to be someone else. They've seen someone whose future they admire and they want to be like that and they've seen that it's possible and they've walked up to that horizon and they've seen the next horizon and they know there's going to be another horizon after that those people are buying books they're listening to tapes they're, they're investing in their own future if you join that rank you immediately step onto the hill where the air's sweeter with the other 90 percent of people below you if you want to talk to a professional buyer they will tell you that seven out of ten people that, that come and see them are horrific Salespeople measure themselves by the people in their own team. They look left and they look right and they think to themselves, well, I'm better than him and I'm better than her, so I'm all right. The buyer is measuring you against the person they saw last and the person they're going to see next. And if those two people are in that Tom percent, you're buggered. I think you're being generous personally, but (laughs) I think A players are around between half and 2% in any industry. And you're going to get good B-plus players between 6 and 12%, by and large. And the rest, that middle layer of mush, are people who are barely breaking even. I know salespeople who still haven't paid off their credit card from university, and they're in their 50s, because they haven't been able to hit quota year on year. Sandler did some research that we released in July. 69.7% of salespeople were below 60% of target. Fewer than 30% were actually going to hit their quota uh, by the end of the year. And you see this in the behavior that is mirrored every December. 
you see lots of companies where 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% of their sales are made in the last two weeks in December because they do fireside sales. And this is where you've got it all wrong, guys. If you are allowing yourself to be pushed by potential buyers into a corner where they're saying, well, we'll buy at the end of the quarter because we know that you don't have the self-esteem and the spine to hot plant your feet when it comes to your price, and we're going to get you a, a fireside sale, then you deserve everything that you get. I was talking to one prospect earlier on this week, and on average, their salespeople discount by 30% as a matter of routine. <laughs> yes. Now, if you discount by 30%, you have to sell 300% more next time to stand still. Absolutely. That but, is insanity. But, you know, during our sales management workshops, it's something I like to point out. It's the sales team's job to hit target. It's the sales manager's job to make sure the target gets hit. If the sales team are working at 60% of target, then, yeah, they take responsibility and they're accountable for that. But their job is to make sure they hit target. The manager's job is to make sure. If, you, if, they're, if they're appealing potatoes, it will be the manager's job to make sure they've got 50 boxes of potatoes at the end of the day. And there will be words and things will be done. Maybe more people will go on potato peeling courses. Maybe things will be sorted out with productivity. Maybe you'd sack a couple. But the sales manager's job was to make sure the target got hit. The fact that those figures are being banded around about the entire sales industry sort of only hitting two-thirds of its capacity or potential has to come down to the way that some sales managers are trained, if at all. They're not trained, though. They're literally dumped in the job and left to sink or swim, which is why the average tenure of a sales manager is 16 months. That smacks of really bad leadership. And it's a travesty because the amount of money that's being wasted, the businesses that are struggling, that will go under, the jobs that will be lost, because without the sales, people lose their jobs. It's not just in sales. It's in all aspects of the job. And they have to cut back on the engineers and the marketing and the operations and the finance. If a finance department behaved the way a sales department behaves, with no process, no systems, no structure, no rules, no boundaries, and all they did was say, okay, we want you to deal with all of those ledgers and just left it to that, they wouldn't be in business for very long. We have to really start thinking as a profession about what it is that we are responsible for. And we are personally responsible for our own development. There hasn't been a day since I was 23 when I first got into selling where I haven't spent at least an hour to six hours studying and developing myself. Often, I would take uh, contracts and go for business that was the other side of the M25. So I'd have three hours to get there and three hours to get back listening to great material. I was mind mapping it and then putting it into practice. I was rehearsing. Because we can already communicate we've finished if you're learning the guitar you'd spend three hours learning the guitar so that you could play the, the solo for stairway to heaven if you're trying to learn spanish you'd make sure that you put the hours in to learn spanish but most of the things that we need improvement on objections as a quick input here objections customers aren't sitting in dark and droop thinking of, of new and more fiendish objections if you're a salesperson you get the same objection three or four times or sorry the same three or four sales objections every time there's no new ones they're, they're just different versions of the same one i I heard one original objection in the last 32 years (laughs) (laughs) but do people come down and sit in the cars and think 
shit, I need an answer to that and I need to work on it properly. And it's the same with questions. In my book, on the Portuguese raindrop questions, I haven't got to address, but tell you why I call that now. It just, what's the really great question that you've worked out to uncover your customer's need? How long have you spent just polishing it and perfecting it and working it? And have you got a set of five of those for different situations where when you ask it, the customer floods you with the information that will help them and help you to help them? But we don't practice that because we can already talk. And we don't practice overcoming objections because, you know, that'll take it the wild stallion that we are out of the um, out of the conversation. You know, we don't want to be hindered and, and, and reined in, do we? We, we? we want everything to be jamming as we're going along. This is another area that really gets my goat. Salespeople and sales managers not doing role play. For every hour you're in front of the prospect, put three hours of practice in. When you mm-hmm. consider how much time effort, resource, money, opportunity cost. It costs you to get one good meeting with a genuine prospect. And bear in mind, this is another depressing statistic, 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it's four in five of the meetings that you set up, you're blowing. It doesn't mean that they weren't uh, quality prospects. It means that you were basically shit. Now, if you waste those meetings, That's a travesty. So why are you not spending time rehearsing? Because for most people, getting two or three appointments from a day's cold calling is a pretty reasonable outcome. Now, do you want to spend eight hours on the phone so that you can then, or in fact, 16 hours on the phone, so you can get five meetings in the hope that one of them will get through the second meeting? And 47% of sales pursuits end no decision Once you've got the pursuit going and you're in second or third or fourth meeting, half of those don't end up in a decision at all. They just end up in no decision. One of the best bits of advice I got when I was at Jim Beam again, actually, I was on a training day, account management training day for a a senior national account manager. It was a a really good couple of days, actually. And the guy came in and told everybody in the room that we'd all been made self-employed, that they'd worked out that each call we were doing to major clients Every time we stepped over the threshold, it cost the company £485, something like that. And from now on, what was going to happen is before we went on each meeting, we had £485 deducted from our bank account and we'd get it back if we came out with more profit than we went in with. And of course, he was just joking. Some people took it to to heart, but I never thought about calls like that. They're lawyers. Well, absolutely. (laughs) Across the pursuit. An enterprise pursuit could easily cost 30, 40, 50, 100, 200,000 pounds. And when you multiply each uh, the number of pursuits to get one deal over the line, we're working with a fintech a couple of years back, and it cost them 1.1 million pounds to get one deal over the line. When you take into account the number of sales that they were, uh, sales pursuits they were following, because each one was costing 100 grand plus, and they were taking, they were closing one in 10. Yeah, now, absolutely. Your proof of concept, your demos, your multiple meetings, time involved in management, forecasting from their work of fiction, their expenses, their foreign travel, all that kind of stuff. It's easily going to cost you five, if not six or even seven figures for some of uh, And there are sales managers and sales directors all around the world who have started to believe because it's just happening so often that their sales team's job is to come back and sit around in a room and give them the reasons why things can't be sold rather than to solve the problem 
of why we're not selling. It's just and like, the question at that point has mm-hmm. to be, I don't suppose there's anyone in the industry who is selling, is there? Because invariably there is. And they're not sitting around making excuses, whining, <laughs> blaming, complaining, grumbling, bitching and moaning. They're all in the same meetings. They're just not the ones who are, who are moaning about it. They're just sitting there going, well, you can all get married next year, guys, because I'm going to still be here. I mean, they're just keeping quiet about it. And that's a shame as well, because you could actually sit, they could actually sit there and sort of share the knowledge of the agents with the people who are sitting there. But I call them lobsters, you know. There's, um, if you watch lobsters in a tank, yeah. lobsters in a tank climb onto each other's back and create a lobster tower. Right. And the reason there's, there's no lid or impediment on a lobster tank or a lobster pot is when the top one, talking about finding Nemo again, when the top one's just sort of like looking over the top and about to reenact that bit where they're all sitting in bags at the end, all the other lobsters pull the top one down to the bottom. And sales teams are full of lobsters. When someone has the idea to, to make a difference and to climb out of the tank, all the others take great glee and pull them down to the bottom of why it won't work. And the reason being that if everybody climbs out of the tank, the shit ones will still be at the bottom and they'll be exposed. At the moment, they're, they're hidden in numbers. They give people excuses and reasons why they shouldn't work harder, do things differently, because they're done fat and happy. They, they, they love taking the company check and sitting around a room and telling you why it can't be sold, because they think that's going to go on forever. I mean, how stupid is that? I'll take this one step further as well. When it comes to discounting, I have a fundamental belief that for every pound you discount, a pound should be taken off your commission or your business. <laughs> Amazing, just how quickly discounting stops at that point. What's remarkable is I use this quite a lot in workshops. But if you ask somebody to look at a twenty dollar bill or a twenty pound note, and you ask them to take it out of the wallet and ask how much they would sell it to you for, if you offer fifteen quid, they go, "No, fifteen pounds is a twenty pound note. I know, I know how much it's worth." I'm like, okay, then I'll buy it off you in bulk. I'll give ten percent. Sell it me for eighteen pounds, and they go, "No, it's a twenty pound note." Because it's got a big 20 on it, they know how much it's worth. You'd give a large percentage of salespeople something worth 20 pounds, and they ask you, what's the wiggle room? What can I knock off? First question, what deal can I do? You can't. You just can't. Let's let's work out how we justify the value, people, rather than actually knock that money off. (laughs) Okay, we've come to the top of the hour, so let's finish on a happy note. You've already (laughs) mentioned Zig Ziglar. Stephen Covey, Jim Rohn. Who are the other people who are influencing you today? Who do you read? Who do you watch? Who do you listen to? I'm a really big fan of Seth Godin's daily email. You'd think a daily email would be too much, but he's a master in an art of, of getting a message over in the space of six, seven, two paragraphs, six, seven lines, two paragraphs. And it's relevant and, and a stroke of genius when it comes to marketing and customer attraction. Perry Marshall. I highly recommend he wrote the 820 sales and marketing book and is an absolute genius when it comes to customer attraction. And with regards to online presentations and selling one to many as events, I would highly recommend a chap called Dave D because all three are based in the States, but widely available. And honestly, that they have really put together so much of my thinking with regards to uh, 21st century sales and marketing. Excellent. Thank you. So final question, golden ticket. You can go back and advise your 23-year-old idiot self (laughs) how to avoid a lifetime of misery and Mm self-sabotage. What bit of advice would you give young Chris? I know I've already mentioned it, but uh, work out how you help people, 
work out where the value is, keep the money, keep your eye on the, on the ball that says the money's here, and start reading earlier than you did, and write your first book a couple of years earlier than you did as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Chris, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. If you want to get hold of Chris, how can we get hold of you? Our website is firstsalestrading.co.uk. Go on there, find me on LinkedIn, Chris Murray, Varda Cruz, which is V-A-R-D-A-K-R-E-U-Z. If I can help, I will, and I love doing this. My accountant and my accounts team absolutely batter me for this because they know that if it wasn't for them, I'd do all this for free. Excellent. Um, Vada Cruz, where did that come from? The Extremely Successful Salesman's Club is a Victorian gentleman's club founded in in, in 1850, and and the guys that founded it were called Edward Vada and Barnabas Cruz. Uh And and the name of one of my books. Excellent. There There you go. Chris Murray, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. So pay attention to the rantings and ravings of two grumpy old men. Get some training, invest in yourself. It's your responsibility to develop yourself. Read widely, find mental, invest in your own training, get a coach. There is no sportsman out there or sportswoman out there who doesn't have a coach. And in fact, many of them have several. I use six coaches for different aspects of my business. And I've got to be honest with you, I've got a lot better since I've learned how to be humble enough to take some direction. If you want to get in touch, then contact me, marcus.kauke at sandler.com. If you'd like to come on as a guest to the podcast and you've got something interesting to say, then get in touch with me either via email or DM me on LinkedIn. And happy selling. Have a great time. Bye.